This is part two in a three-part series based upon Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. So you want to be baptized. I hope you will be, and I hope you will be very, very soon. Another way of saying that is, so you want to be buried. So you want to have the old person completely put away. So you want to turn over a new leaf and start a new chapter. You want to start out with a clean white slate. So you want the old person, the old you, to be utterly forgotten, buried beneath the waters of baptism, and to be resurrected, as it were, to rise in newness of life. I think by this point you've already proven to yourself, time and again, no doubt, that baptism is not splattering the startled infant at six weeks of age in a christening ceremony in the dark nave or somewhere of a Catholic church. I think you understand that it's not sprinkling and it's not pouring. But I want to take you through a couple of scriptures on that because the beautiful topology here, the type of baptism, is exactly that of burial. And there again, I think in passing, I want to say that's why, again, I do not think that cremation is something which ought to be advised to God's people. It isn't something that I would want for myself or any of my loved ones or family. But a simple reason that burial in the grave and baptism are typical of each other. And that baptism is the type of burial. Otherwise, we would go through some kind of a fire like the pagans did, leaping through rings of fire or singe our hair off or burn a portion of our bodies, but we don't. Instead, we are buried, plunged into temporarily for the count of maybe one or two, a second or two, like a watery grave, and then we come out of that watery grave. Matthew 3, 13 to 17, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan, the Jordan River, unto John to be baptized of him. It's amazing to me that any of the fundamentalist mainstream Protestant churches like the Methodists or others can believe in sprinkling or pouring when you read the plain truth about what the Bible says about baptism. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and you come to me? Jesus answered, said, Allow it to be so now, for thus it, full, it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he suffered him, or permitted him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, so he was down in the water, went up out of the water, and lo, the heavens were open upon him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So God the Father sent an angelic messenger. Christ said, You've neither seen his face nor heard his voice at any time. So we know this was an angelic messenger speaking in the first person, as if from God the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. John 3, 22 and 23. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and he tarried with them and baptized. It meant the disciples baptized. Christ himself did not, but his disciples did. And John also was baptizing in Anon near to Salim, because there was much water there. Interesting. John 3, 23, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. Well, you carry water in a jar if all you're going to do is to sprinkle it upon someone. So these are important scriptures to demonstrate once again that baptism, and the Greek word itself, baptizo, means literally to plunge into or to immerse completely, to bury in water. If you'll turn to Ephesians 4, verses 21 to 24, it speaks of the old man. It talks about the old personality, the old way of viewing, the old way of doing things, the old way of looking at things. 
If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conduct, as it should read, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. A complete change in your outlook, in your approach, in your method of doing things, in your sense of values. I put it this way, before baptism it is like someone has been peeking at the truth of God through a keyhole, and suddenly when God gives you His Holy Spirit, it's like someone flung open the door. Now you can see. Now you can understand. Now you can see things that were of no consequence to you before. Another way of putting it is that your entire system of values has been turned right side up, where it was upside down. Things that were important to you before become absolutely unimportant. And things that were unimportant, study of the Bible, for example, that you would have scorned and, and scoffed uh, at others for doing it, become a priceless treasured moment in the privacy of your own home to sit there with a pad and a pencil and a Bible and a couple of study helps like an exhaustive concordance or a Bible handbook, and to drink in of the Word of God and to underline the important scriptures and to learn about the truth of God. A complete change in your whole outlook as a result of repentance and baptism and the receiving of God's Holy Spirit. He says that you put off concerning the former conduct, as you should read, not conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. There is a new spirit being. We'll go into that in greater detail in the third part of this series about the Holy Spirit. You are not, when you undergo the rite of baptism, merely doing something which is physical and which has no spiritual consequences. It is an outward physical rite. It is a physical manifestation of your willingness to obey God. It is a type, which you need to understand, of the fact that you, prior to baptism, are not fit to live. That prior to baptism, the sentence of death hangs over us. Prior to repentance and baptism, we have a black mark in heaven above that says, this one is going to be destroyed in Gehenna fire. As a result of repentance, baptism, and the receiving of God's Holy Spirit, that mark is erased. And we have a clean slate in heaven above. And the book in heaven above doesn't even have a single mark on it. The angels turn over a fresh page. The other pages are completely destroyed. They're forgotten, as I covered in the last section. How God will remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, that they will never be mentioned to us again. They're completely obliterated and wiped away. When the death sentence is carried out on an arch criminal, it's the end of the matter. He can't rob any more banks. He can't kill anyone. When I see the hair-shirted, breast-beating do-gooders outside of a prison where someone who has maybe killed 16 or 20 people is about to go to the electric chair, and they're saying, oh, let's not descend to his level. It is no deterrent. What? It's no deterrent? You mean he's going to come back from the dead and go kill somebody else? It certainly deters him and anyone who will tell you it does not deter other people who look at the horrifying way in which they shave the head and put this manacles on him and strap him down and the body is going like this, sparks flying, and the man is just in the throes of a gigantic charge of electric shock. 
and all the other people who would commit that kind of crimes ought to be forced to view that kind of thing, you bet it is a deterrent. But the point is this, and the analogy is apt. When a great criminal who is under the sentence of death has been killed, the books are closed. Forget it. He's gone. He's buried. He isn't walking around stalking any more young ladies. He's not out planning the next bank robbery. He's not out looking to pick up someone as a serial killer. He is in the grave buried. Well, that's the way we need to look at baptism. All of our past lives, from the time of our rebellious teenage to the time of every rotten thing, sin, flaw, fault, crime, whatever that we've ever done, if we've stolen, if we've lied, if we've cheated, if we've abused other people, if we've committed every kind of a heinous sin and crime, it all is buried. It's all forgotten. It is all washed away. The old man is typically, but Christ has suffered the penalty in our stead, buried and considered dead. But because we don't have to stay dead, we don't have to stay under that water, but we come right back out in a second and a half or two, Christ has already risen to heaven at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest, and He died in our stead. We don't have to die for our sins, but we have to undergo a ritual which pictures our death. It pictures the death, the burial, and the resurrection. The death and burial of the old person and the resurrection of a new and a different you, a new and a different personality, to live in a new and a different way of life. Notice how the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 likens it to a resurrection. He says in verse 1, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above. And it doesn't mean heavenly mansions with gold bricks. It is talking about heavenly precepts, heavenly concepts, heavenly truths. It's talking about the coming kingdom of God. It's talking about God's laws, God's methods, God's manner and way of doing things. All of His laws that are there for our good. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. You're not, I mean, I can't imagine. This is just a few things that are unimaginable to me. It is unimaginable to me that somebody that has been baptized would ever go buy a movie magazine and look into the lives of movie stars. It's unimaginable to me that somebody that has been baptized would pick up an, a National Enquirer or a Globe and just avidly read it. I just can't believe that the tastes of people who allegedly have set their affection on things above and not on things in this earth could be so bizarre and could be so gutter level that they would want to read the slop, the filth, and the garbage that people who are liars and uh, people who are guilty of every kind of chicanery. And of course, they put a little tiny thing, a disclaimer down in the editorial box. It says, this is for entertainment only. So when it has a great big article about a woman gave birth to a rhinoceros or whatever, the, the garbage is that they put there, or ghouls, or Nostradamus, or all these predictions, or all these Hollywood stars, and people are avidly reading all of that kind of thing. To me, it is like the scripture that talks about a pig that is washed returns to the wallow, and the dog returns to its own vomit. That if someone is baptized and they return to wallow in the absolute garbage of this world, then that is, is hard to understand. 
And that's what I'm talking about, about living in newness of life and having completely different standards, a different set of values. When things that you used to think were not important are suddenly the most important to you and things that were important and, and fantastic and you just absorbed, they absorbed all of your time and you really devoured it and you went, you got involved in it and so on, you don't do it anymore. And so it is a complete change. He said, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. You see, the Bible says you are dead. The old person is considered dead. Penalty paid, but you don't have to pay the penalty. Christ did in your stead, but you undergo the rite of baptism, which pictures your death. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with Him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members. You know, the woman says, oh, I was so mortified. I got to the party and there was a lady wearing the identical blue polka dot dress that I just bought at the rack this morning. That isn't the meaning of this word. It is not embarrass. It's not humiliate. It is put to death. Mortification means when rigor mortis is set in. Mort is the French word, the Latin word for death. The vent du mort was the wind of death. There was a book written about that, a man of the American frontier. Mortify, put to death, subjugate, destroy, bury in baptism your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience, in the which you also lived or walked sometime when you lived in them, but now you put off all of these. Anger. Oh, what a sermon is in that. When I think about people who have been baptized years ago and have tempers and just go like that, just like an absolute bomb, just like a short fuse on the 4th of July, boom, you know, the, the slightest little thing will touch them off. Wrath. Lots of people that I've known in God's church, and I guess they think they're in God's church, are wrathful people. They go around with, with anger and wrath in their heart just boiling toward other people all the time. And yet in their self-deluded self-righteousness and superciliousness and empty-headed nonsense, they think they are converted. You ever know people like that? I used to drive my mother crazy because like any other carnal person prior to baptism and conversion, I would argue about the people that I saw in the church and I could see their flaws quicker than they could. And that's interesting, too, because a carnal-minded person in the world can see the flaws and the carnality in people who claim to be converted, and that's because they're in Satan's world, and Satan certainly recognizes all of that very, very quickly. And I would say to my mother, well, if these people are supposed to be converted, how could they act like that? And there was one lady in particular who was one of the most vicious gossips that I have ever had the displeasure of encountering. The lady was a seething a steeping, bubbling, boiling cauldron of hatred and malice and judgmental decisions and so on directed toward other people. Her mouth was going just about all the time about other, well, I can't believe, I just, you know, can't believe they're doing that. And yet she was supposed to be a staunch church member. Well, maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. I tend to think maybe she wasn't. It says, put off all of these, anger, wrath, Malice, that's long-term maliciousness. 
That's a desire to do dirt and do harm to other people. Blasphemy. I've even heard people who have long since been allegedly converted who will still blaspheme, take God's name in vain. Filthy communication out of your mouth. And so that's crass gutter language. Put it out of your mouth. Don't use it anymore. Lie not one to another, seeing that you put off the old man with his deeds. Only the fool hideth malice or hatred with lying lips, says the Bible. And there are those who will come up and glad hand you and pat you on the back and say, how are you doing? And it's good to see you again, when actually down inside they have a different agenda. They're trying to get you. They're trying to do something really terrible to you. I know what I'm talking about, by the way. Lie not to one another, seeing you put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him. Now let's turn to Romans 6, because it is the baptismal chapter. Here's Romans, the sixth chapter, and you should read this and study the entire chapter very slowly. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? What is sin? 1 John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Meaning that God can forgive us over and over and over again. Makes His graciousness and His mercy more abundant. It abounds because we do these terrible things. God forbid, says the Apostle Paul. So what is the opposite? What's the other side of this coin? We should not continue in sin. What is sin? The breaking of God's Ten Commandments. What is not continuing in sin? Keeping the Ten Commandments. In every nuance of its higher spiritual application as Jesus Christ lifted the law to its spiritual intent. When He said, you've heard it said of old time, and He then cited the old law that said that if any man committed adultery, it was a sin. But I'm telling you that if a man even looks on a woman to lust after her in his heart, he has the same as done it, so therefore it is a sin. They said of old time, if you kill, you've murdered somebody, you've broken the law. But I'm telling you that if you hate someone, if you have murder in your heart, and you say to somebody, you worthless wretch, it's the same thing as having killed him. I know people who think they are Christian who go around with absolute hatred in their hearts toward other people, of other groups, other churches, other people, 24 hours a day, and they like to deceive themselves that they are Christian when they are absolutely not. God forbid, he says, how shall we that are dead to sin? There it is again. We're looked upon as dead. The old body has died when we are lowered into the baptismal pool or the waters of baptism. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? So it depicts the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as well as the death and burial and resurrection of our old self to a new self. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism unto death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk, it means live, in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, and He went into the tomb, He was not destroyed by fire. He was buried in a tomb for three days and three nights. If we have been planted together, notice the language again, how any of the Protestant churches could ever come up with the idea 
that you sprinkle water on somebody's forehead or you pour a little bit of water over their head, you may as well throw a damp cloth at them. You may as well take a corpse or a body and tie it to a tree and throw a shovel of dirt in its face and walk away and say, there, we just buried old Uncle Henry. How they could come up with this with the plain statements of the Word of God is just beyond me, but they have and they do, and that is their tradition, and they stick to it. The Baptists are known to be one of the few churches, and I guess there are others, like Pentecostal churches and perhaps even others that I'm not certain about, but many of the mainstream, including the Catholic Church and others, just do the sprinkling bit, the christening, and they call it a baptism. It's not a baptism. It says, if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this first, that our old man is crucified with Him. The word from Stauros is not crucified on a crucifix, but actually affixed to an upright pale, but it really means put to death by the most cruel instrument that you could imagine, that the body of sin might be destroyed. We collect in our lives a body of sin. We represent sin. We are laden with sin until we are buried in the pool or the river, water, tank, or body, you know, whatever it is, body of water, of baptism, and we come out of that water a new man, and the old man is dead and forgotten, and every rotten thing that we've ever said, thought, or done is left behind underneath that watery grave, and it's never to be resurrected again. It'll never be mentioned to us again that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. I wrote a poem many years ago about cigarette smoking, and I met a man, a man at one of my personal appearance campaigns only a couple of months ago that told me that that very thing that I said one time about a little white three-inch or so long uh, pellet or pill or, or cigarette was like his boss and master, and that it dictated to him and told him what he would do, and that he had no control over it. Apparently, it just so outraged him, he thought, I can control this, and he got somehow the strength and the willpower to break the cigarette habit when I told him, and maybe read that poem, and told him about cigarette smoking and how it was such an addiction that an addict had no control over it whatsoever, but was being ruled by an appetite of the flesh. It says here that henceforth we should not serve sin. There are some forms of sin that actually make us their slave, and we serve sin if we're not careful. He that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dies no more. Death has no more dominion over Him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he lives, he lives unto God. And you know that we are not saved by the death of Jesus Christ, we are saved by his life. I'll turn to that in a moment and read it to you. Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign, that's rule, rule over you, in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield you your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, meaning under the consequences, under the penalty of the law now, but under grace, mercy, forgiveness, 
Now notice the next question. Immediately somebody would ask, and I gave this in the, I hope I covered it, but I did not mention it again now. When the great righteous judge, who is God the Father, is sitting there at the judgment seat, and you come before him on your knees with tears, and you are repenting, and you want to be forgiven. Forgiven of what? The breaking of God's law. What is sin? The breaking of God's law. Forgiven of sin. Does he then tell you you're free to go out and break the law all you wish? Now that I've forgiven you for having broken the law, I've given you my graciousness, I've given you my mercy, I've removed your past sins, your past law breaking, as far as the east is from the west, now you're free under my graciousness to go out and do the very thing that brought you to the point where you were deserving of death in the first place. So the Apostle Paul, anticipating that question, says, What then shall we sin? Shall we continue to break God's Ten Commandments because we're not under the law, meaning under His penalty, but under grace? God forbid. Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, His servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. In verse 8 of chapter 5, it says, God commends His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. When we get into the next of this three-part segment, we will come to see the truth of that statement and what that really means. That we are saved by a living high priest, a living Savior, and that what is happening here is the death of an old person and the begettal of a brand new life. It is more than merely a ritual. It is more than merely a rite, a shadowy type of the death burial of the old self and the resurrection of the new. It is, as we will learn in the next segment, an absolute fact. To whet your appetite. I've said time and again in many of a personal appearance campaign, there's never been a young lady yet who came home and said, Mom, I'm in trouble, I'm half pregnant. When you are begotten with God's Holy Spirit, it is a fait accompli. It is a past action. It happens, and it's true, and it is real, and from then on there is a new spirit creature that has been brought into this world in the human spirit together with the Spirit of God and has never existed before. I want you to anticipate that as you think about baptism and remember what it pictures. You repent of sin, of breaking God's law, and then you wade into the pool and someone will administer the rite of baptism and lay you into the water and bring you out. And then we get to Act 3 when Peter said, Repent and be baptized and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. And that is the most important part of all. So far, everything you have done is of the human heart and of the human body. But next we will get into what God does. Now it's up to God to fulfill His part of this three-part program for salvation.